Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for the good God that you are, that you have hidden our life with you, that you died for our sake, that we know we can trust in you. We thank you for the blessings you've given in our lives. We pray that we would walk according to your word. We would know your word. Today, as we hear your word, may we not be hearers only, but may we be doers of your word. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Good morning. This week, as I was, or over the last few weeks, as I was preparing the sermon, uh, the sermon today is on Jesus cursing the fig leaves, the fig tree, and uh, the title of the sermon is All Leaves and No Figs. And as I was dealing with this passage, uh, I used to work in agriculture, I used to work in landscaping, and then I ran a farm for about four and a half years, and I never had to deal with figs. And so I actually had some misconceptions, and actually I had all of my life uh, misunderstood this passage. And then when I started getting into it uh, and understanding how figs, fig trees worked and the seasons and all that, it began to make a little more sense to me. Uh, so... This morning, I'll share some of that with you guys, and maybe some of you guys who are into ag, you'll like it. Others of you, it'll just be something you want to pass right on. But uh, math, we're dealing today with Matthew 21, 18 through 22. We're continuing our sermon series on the book of Matthew. And as we go into this, a little, a few chapters, a few passages back, Jesus is now at the end of his ministry. He's had about three years of ministry. He's moving into Jerusalem, into this phase where he's going to be crucified So he's carrying his cross already in some sense, knowing what's coming before him. And so as he goes into Jerusalem, I don't know, is the picture up here of this one? Uh, this, This is what Jerusalem looked like during the time of Jesus. To the right is the Mount of Olives, and to the left... Uh, you can't actually see it in the picture, but on up there, that's where Jesus will be crucified outside of the city gates. But this is basically what the city looked like during those days. Uh, there's a site called uh, archaeologicalillustrated.com. They have great um, pictures on what the things in the ancient world looked like. And what I find is that seeing these places helped me to know these were real places, real people. Jesus wasn't just, um, you know, it's not some fantasy story, but these are real places that you can go to and look at. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem the week before his crucifixion on Sunday, Palm Sunday. They're raising branches, uh, palm branches. He's riding on a donkey. These are prophesied in Zechariah 9.9. This is the way the Messiah is supposed to enter Jerusalem. So Jesus is finally saying he's been hiding the fact that he's Messiah. Now he's basically proclaiming it. And the people are, are proclaiming, Hosanna, Hosanna, God in the highest. That, Hosanna, that come save us. He's come to save us. And then he goes into the temple, and he cleans out the temple court area. That's the place where the Gentiles could come in. And Jesus says to them in one of the passages, uh, this place was supposed to be a place of prayer for the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he cleans it out, meaning Jesus has power to interpret the scriptures and to guide the way people live out their faith. And then in the next uh, drawing you see there, it's a picture of, Jerusalem and Bethany and Bethphage. And so Jesus, this whole week, he's not staying in Jerusalem. He's going out of the city about a mile away, a mile and a half away to a city called Bethany. And along the way, he passes through Bethphage. And Bethphage literally means house of figs. And so as we're talking about the the fig leaf, the tree today, we think as Jesus was passing by back and forth from uh, Bethany to Jerusalem, that he's passing by this fig tree and that he stops to see if there's any figs on the tree and he finds that there are none. 
So in, in verses 18 through 19 of chapter 21, Matthew 21, it says, In the morning, as he was returning to the city, as he's returning to Jerusalem from Bethany, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Now, growing up, I always thought, man, Jesus, he's being pretty harsh here, killing this poor little fig tree. And I never could get past that. And so when I went into this passage today, when I heard this was going to be my passage, I was thinking about that. Gosh, how do, I, how do I do this? Because in the Muslim world, sometimes you hear people talk about this like, yeah, Jesus and this, are you guys sure this is a guy you really want to follow? Because he just curses this poor little fig tree. You know, what's the deal with that? And so I like what Norman Olson from GARBC Commentary says about this. He says, a person is going to have trouble with this incident if he or she doesn't get beyond the poor little tree that was cursed. Trees, plants, and fruits are not morally or spiritually responsible. So Christ was using this incident prophetically, symbolically, and educationally. He really has nothing against this poor little tree. This poor little tree is not just, you know, taking God's wrath for no reason. He's doing this so that the people around him will understand the prophetic message he is proclaiming here through this incident. So when we look at fig trees, uh, fig trees and the leaves and the fruit come out at the same time in spring. And so if there are leaves, there should be figs. And they actually have three, three um, crops, but the first one comes in the spring, right before Passover time. So Jesus has just come in right before Passover time. Makes sense. This fig tree should have leaves, and it also should have fruit, but it doesn't. Uh, and Jesus uses the fig tree in Matthew 24, 32 through 33. Later on, he's going to be talking about the end times, and he's going to give all these signs of the end times, and he's going to use the fig tree and the seasons that goes through for uh, that purpose. He's going to say, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as it bra- it, its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. So he uses the fig tree prophetically there again. And the first time in Scripture we actually see the fig tree is going to be back in Genesis 3, verse 7. When you have Adam and Eve, it says, Then the eyes of both were open. They've just eaten the fruit. And they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And the reason they probably chose a fig tree, I don't know if you've ever seen a fig tree. Some of you may have never even eaten a fig. Uh, They're really good, by the way. Um, One of my favorite fruits, but I don't get them often. I don't think Indonesia has figs. But it's a big leaf. And so, you know, maybe you could position a few of these together to try to cover yourselves. But as we know, leaves don't sew together very well. So God actually says, no, you know, you're basically trying to cover yourself with your own good work. You've made a mistake. You've now got sin and shame, and you're trying to cover that through something you're making, and that doesn't work. So prophetically, what God does then is he kills an animal, makes some uh, clothes for them, and covers them just the same as Jesus when he dies on the cross. He's covering our guilt and shame through his blood. But this is basically the first all-natural organic clothing choice and it's a huge failure for all you women who are into Carter and you like fashion and stuff like that. It's a huge fashion crime. Actually, uh, my wife today, when I got up, I, I put on my pineapple shirt because when I put on my pineapple shirt, I don't know, I feel strong for some reason. I, I bought this shirt against my wife's um, her advice. She doesn't like this shirt. She doesn't want me to wear it when I preach, but I thought I'm, I'm preaching on fruit, and so I'm 
I put on my shirt, and I'm thinking, she's thinking I have no right to speak about fashion crimes today because of my pineapple shirt. But uh, the fig tree and the vine, actually, Jesus often, or the scriptures often put the fig tree and the vine together in prophecy. The fig tree and the vine represent Israel and Judah corporately. So when we look at the scriptures, the first time we see it is 1 Kings 4.25. It's talking about the time of Solomon. And it says, And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba. That's the north to the south, all of Israel. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree as the days of Solomon. So basically what this is talking about is things are good. And when they have their own vines and they're fruiting and when the fig tree is fruiting, things are good in Israel. It's prophetically, it's a, it's a symbol of God blessing them because they are doing what is right. They are putting their faith into practice. But then it goes to Hosea 9, 10a about Israel. It says, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit of the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. So when they saw these things start to bud and, and, and to fruit, you know, it's been a long winter for them. Uh, the, during that time, they didn't get many fruit. They didn't get much fruit and vegetables during the winter. But now when springtime comes, they see these things. It is a huge blessing for them. But it goes on in Jeremiah eight thirteen. And he says, when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree, even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. And during the time of Jeremiah, the Israelites have, had not been following God faithfully. In fact, Israel has already destroyed. This is now the southern kingdom of Judah about to be destroyed, and they have turned to idol worship. They have turned away from God. There is still a semblance of religious life in Judah, but Jesus is basically saying there's nothing there. God is saying, there, there is nothing there in your religious observance anymore. You are dead. You are not fruitful. Then again in Joel 1.7, it has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. And this is after Israel has been destroyed. And Judah has been finally destroyed. So modern Christianity tends to overemphasize individualistic Christianity, individual salvation. We tend to worry about our own, just, we tend to talk about, it's just about me, you know, it's about my relationship with God, him saving me. But much of the scriptures is corporate in nature. It's relational. What we do has an effect on everyone else, and what everyone else does has an effect on us. And that was true of Israel and Judah. It's also true of the church. When we look at Revelations, Revelations 2, 5, talking to the church in Ephesians, and Jesus is here. He's talking to the seven churches, and he's commending them for some things, and he's telling them there are some things they need to change. And in Ephesus, he writes, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. They, the church is not in a good state. He says, Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. When we talk about the lampstand here, we talk about God's blessing on that church, God's moving and, and working in them. But they have turned away from the things they first did, and they have turned away from the things Christ has asked them to do. They are no longer abiding. They are no longer walking with him. And he warns the church that their lampstand is about to be taken away. It's a warning to us as well. But in the scriptures, it does talk about our individual uh, spiritual life. John fifteen five through 7 uh, talk about the vine and the branches. It says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, 
he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. It's a clear warning to us individually, too, that we need to abide in Christ daily, abide in his word, and that there needs to be something that comes out of our, just our, our, our religiosity, our, um, what we do on Sundays and what we do religiously. For the, for the time of Jesus, the biggest picture of this was the Pharisees. They were the staunch religious conservatives, the ones who um, were trying to follow the law as closely as they could, and so much so that they had created their own laws to make sure they followed the other laws. And so in Matthew 23, 1 through 7, it, it says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. And that's basically the, it's saying they have authority over spiritual matters for you. So do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the places of honor at feasts and the, be- and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbis by other. Now, back in that time, uh, they would take these boxes and put them on their heads, and inside of that, there was a scripture, and it was Deuteronomy 6, 4. And that's, the, that's that passage. It's called the Shema. Um, Israelites always would quote this. It's, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall... Talk about it with your children when you walk in the streets, when, you, when you're at home, put it on your doorpost, put it on your hands, put it on your forehead. And so they would literally do that. They would literally write this over their doorpost. They would literally put it into scripture and put it on their hand. They would put it on their head. And so they did this to show everyone that they were trying to observe the law. And then they would wear these prayer shawls that had these big, long fringes on them. And that meant, I am really holy. And so they would go out in the streets sometimes, and Jesus talks about this. They would pray, they lift up their hands, and they would, you know, basically scream their prayer out to God. People would see the flag tree on their head, the, the thing on their, their, heart, their arm, the, the fringes, and they would know these are religious people. When I was growing up, the way you showed that you were a righteous or a religious person was you put on a suit and tie, and you picked up your Bible, and you walked to church, and you let everybody see you do it. So on Sunday... Everybody knew you were a Christian. But the rest of the week, nobody could tell because you were just like anybody else. And that, my family, we were in and out of church. We weren't that religious of people. But I had to wear some very uncomfortable suits as a kid. I hated suits. And to this day, I hate wearing a suit. But mostly why I hate wearing a suit these days is because it brings back that image to me of hypocrisy in the church that people were supposed to know we were Christians because of something outward like that, something that was a very strong symbol of Christianity in my area. When I grew up and I bought a car, I put a sticker on the back of my, my uh, car that was a, a Christian sticker. And then as I began to drive, I realized I wasn't a very good driver and that it might be a bad witness to do that. So I peeled my sticker back off. You know, we want people to know that we're Christians not because we have a bumper sticker, or because we wear certain clothes. But we want it to be because 
They see how we treat other people, how we are a transform, an agent of transformation to those around us. Our Christianity should not be something that's just on Sundays, just when we come to church. And there, by the way, there's nothing wrong with suit and tie. There's nothing wrong with a Bible. There's nothing wrong with a bumper sticker on your car. I'm not saying that. But when it becomes what the Pharisees were, that it's, that's the way people know you're a Christian, it's a problem. Uh, about this same time when the fig trees would be blooming, they were also whitewashing tombs in Jerusalem because this was the time when people would be coming from all over the world, Jews and some non-Jews, they would be coming in for the Passover celebrations. And a lot of times back in that time, there's, there's no place to stay. There's no inn, you know, as we saw in, at Christmas with Jesus, there's no place for him at the end. In Jerusalem, there were some places to stay, but there were too many people. So people stayed in caves. But if you stayed in a cave with dead bones from a dead person, then you're unclean and you cannot go into the temple area. You are unclean and unable to participate in Passover. So they would whitewash these things so that it was a symbol, don't go into this place. But they would also sometimes build standalone tombs to the prophets and they would whitewash them every spring as the pilgrims came in and the pilgrims would come and they would pray in front of this, you know, supposedly receive some power. This is not in scripture. This is tradition, by the way. You should not do that. Um, But... Jesus uses this symbol for the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 27 through 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. lawlessness. You know, do we want people to see us like that? to be truly spiritually dead people inside, but on the outside, we look like we are alive. We do not want that. We want our lives to be full of the Spirit, growing and fruitful. So Christianity today comes in many outward forms, right? You know, I've, I've been all over the world in many different places, in Catholic churches, Orthodox churches, Protestant churches, many different types of Protestant churches. Uh, there's high church, there's traditional church, there's mega and secret church, there's simple church. There's many ways that the tree may flower, so to speak. The fig tree may flower for Christianity. And honestly, there's, there's no, the Bible does not say there's a right way and a wrong way to hold church. So high church, low church, simple church, mega church, none of these things are in and of themselves right or in and of themselves wrong. But the question is, what fruit comes out of that? Are we bearing fruit or are we just religious? John 14, 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the commandments were to love God. That was basically the first four commandments and the Ten Commandments. And then love your neighbor, which is basically the other six commandments. Love the people that are around you. Your love of God should result. If it's truly love of God, it should result in you reaching out to other people. So let's talk about some real-life examples of how this might play out with the leaves and the fruit. So, daily application of God's word among family, friends, and acquaintances. You know, we can do a quiet time every morning, and that's great. You know, getting in God's word, we can go to church on Sundays. But then, do we actually practice that with the people that are closest to us in our lives? Do they know the gospel from us? Have they heard how God changed our life and what he did to change our lives? When they are in trouble, Do we reach out to them and love and do we care for them? Because a lot of times in individualistic Christianity, quite honestly, what we say is, well, I have my finances, I have my family, and I'm taking care of my own. And, you know, they have their finances and they have their family and and they should take care of their own too. And and I don't want to meddle and I don't want to get involved. But the Bible says very clearly, 
Our, we are our brother's keeper. And, and the church, we stand together. We, we need to make sure people are doing okay in the church. We need to be reaching out. We need to have daily interaction with each other, not maybe every day, but more than just at church. If we're the body of Christ, we should be interacting with people more than just at church. When people are in trouble, are we practicing our faith by helping, giving generously, giving sometimes sacrificially to those who are in need around us? Living out our, and sharing the gospel outside the walls of the church in response to the worship of God. The reason why we come on Sunday here is to get to know more about God, but to also worship him. It's a relationship. It's a relationship with God, the creator of the universe, but also with each other's. But that is supposed to help us to energize us then to go out and be the hands and feet and mouth of Jesus out in the world the other six days a week. Are we doing that? You know, I was thinking back on my own life this week. I'm, I'm caught up in a lot of things I'm doing at work. And am I being that? I can't say that I am all the time. I, I feel like there's, they're just struggling me. You know, you get so busy with things, that, especially in COVID, I feel like for myself, uh, and it's been hard to interact with people. It's hard to know what's proper and trying to interact with people. And so I don't do it as much as I used to do. And it's really burdened me lately that <laughs> this is an area in my life where I need to pay attention and do something. In our world today, one of the big things that's happening is people are protesting about this and that. And, and they're angry. They want change. And so as we look at Christianity and we look at being a follower of Christ, being a hands-on part of the solution instead of simply complaining from afar about the problem is the better approach for us. That doesn't mean, when I was young, I protested. Uh, I was involved in one, one particular um, issue, and I would go out and I would protest some. And I was, a, I was the good kind. I didn't write bad slogans about anybody. I didn't go out and throw rocks. I didn't burn anything. Um, but I was involved in, in speaking out. But during the rest of the year, I did something about it. I was involved and trying to make a difference among the people who were struggling with this particular issue, I think that is what Christ calls us to do, not just protest about something. It's easy to yell at somebody else about what they're doing wrong. It's easy to tell other people they need to change. But what's hard is for us to change and to get our hands messy in the lives of others because, quite frankly, getting in the lives of others is messy. I work with refugees, so I end up in the kind of the social justice, uh, you know, kind of things out there. And I have to admit, I'm, I'm frustrated with a lot of what goes on with refugees as far as advocacy, because I feel like a lot of it is people standing on the sidelines screaming at those people who are involved that they're not doing everything the right way or not doing enough or whatever. People shouldn't be on the sidelines. They need to get involved. We as believers, the things we care about, we need to be doing hands-on things within the community to change those things. So then Jesus goes on in verses 20 to 22 of Matthew chapter 21 to say, when, well, Matthew actually says, he says, when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. This verse is hugely misused all across the Christian world these days, especially among health and wealth. Um, I personally have never seen, in all of history, I've done a lot of, of research in history, I've never heard of a Christian pulling up a mountain and throwing it into the sea. So obviously, this is a metaphor, right? Jesus is using a metaphor here. Um, but a lot of people 
take this passage and say, well, anything that my heart desires, if I ask Jesus and I say it in his name and I add the name Jesus Christ at the end, that that is going to come to me. And that is not what the scripture is actually implying. Uh, earlier in Matthew 17, 19 through 21, it says something very similar. They are, Jesus has been doing some ministry and a few of the disciples are working with somebody who's demon possessed and they can't cast out the demon. And so Jesus finally is called over and he casts out the demon for them. And it says, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So he's reiterating what he said um, later on in chapter 21. I love the ESV study note on this. It says uh, about verse 20, moving a mountain was a common metaphor in Jewish literature for doing what was seemingly impossible. So Jesus is not suggesting them doing some showy miracles just to be showy. But he's saying when you come up to trials and you come up to challenges, you if you trust in me and these are things that need to happen, then trust in me and I will provide the ability for you to do that. Uh, John 15, five through seven says, if you abide in me, and there's the word if, that's the important thing. The Bible clarifies the Bible. A lot of times if we have a difficult to understand passage, we look to other passages in the Bible to see why, to see what we should really do with this. And it says, if, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John 15, five through seven. So the important thing is that you have a relationship with Christ, a daily relationship, an abiding relationship, and you're abiding in his word. So you know the parameters of scripture. You know the kind of things God wants you to be doing and that he would be asking you to be doing. And then we go to 1 John 5, 14 through 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if, here's the if again, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So we have it according to his word, according to abiding in him, according to his will. He hears us, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. And then James 4.3 even clarifies more. It says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And I think that's probably the most important one there is that, you know, it's not just about us wanting to do something, but why are we asking this of Christ? Is it for our own benefit? Is it for our own um, building up in front of others? Do we want people to see us as someone that's, you know, super spiritual or whatever? Um, we might not get what we ask if we ask in a wrong motive. So what kinds of things should we be asking for? Well, the, when you look at Jesus and the, um, the Lord's Prayer, he says, um, when he's teaching his disciples how to pray, he says, uh, hallowed, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. So basic needs are obviously one of those things that we need to be asking for for ourselves and others. That's something we should ask God for. And as you notice, he doesn't just always give us things way in advance. Sometimes he gives them to us as we need them. So we're talking about daily needs here. Then he talks about God's will and kingdom to be established throughout the world, seeking God's kingdom first. You know, what does that mean, God's will and kingdom to be established throughout the world? I think we, we all know the Great Commission, that we should be reaching out to others with the gospel. We should be making sure that everyone has the chance to respond to the gospel. The transforming forming power of God in our lives and the lives of others. We want a real change 
and people around us. We want a real change in our own lives and those around us, and we cannot do that on our own. You know, when Adam and Eve, again, with the fig, tree le- the fig leaves, right, they're, they're making their own clothing out of that. And God says, nope, that's not going to work. I need to do this for you. Jesus came because he needed to transform our lives through the power of the Spirit, through the power of what he did on the cross. We cannot change people's lives. We can get out, we can be activists, we can do all kinds of things. But what we need is people to be in the Word, as part of the body, interacting with the body of Christ through the Spirit and God transforming lives out there. And that's something only His Spirit can do, and He usually does it through the church, through prayer. So what kinds of things should we not be asking of God? Well, selfish things that benefit only us, of course. I think one of the problems with the health and wealth gospel is they're really asking a lot of times for things that will expand their business in a way that really benefits them. Now, there's no problem with business expansion, okay? I think in the world we live in, we know that in business, right, uh, there's not just a zero-sum game where when you're, if you're doing a good business, then then you're taking from someone else. And so you, you, only you can succeed and they fail or only you can fail and they succeed. But when we're, I think in the business world, if I understand it correctly, I'm not a businessman, so I'm just trying to speak from the Bible. But also uh, being around businessmen, I hear things in the business world. Things that benefit us at the expense of others around us, that would be kind of in that category. You know, I, I've heard people say, well, if I got a nicer car, even though, you know, I don't have the finances for that right now. If I got a nicer car, then people would see that I'm successful. God's blessing me and my business would do better and I could pay my employees better and all that. I don't think, again, that's what this is meant for. I think this is meant for ask the things you need and the transformation of lives around you and those you touch, but not necessarily for selfish things that just benefit us. In Luke 13, 6 through 9, Jesus talks about the parable of the fig tree and God's patience. And it says, and he, told his par- and he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Where does your life stand right now? Is there fruit coming off of your life? Is there fruit coming from you? God is patient. Sometimes we mistake God's patience for the fact that it's okay to live as I'm living. And sometimes that is not the message God is trying to send to us. Sometimes he's trying to say to us, I'm giving you time. I'm being patient with you. But right now, if you evaluate your life, you evaluate the last year, you evaluate what's coming up in your life, are you bearing fruit for the kingdom of God? Not just are you doing some nice things, but are you bearing fruit for the kingdom of God? And your families, fathers, are you bearing fruit in your children? Mothers, are you investing in your children in a way that they are bearing fruit? In your business, are you bearing fruit for the kingdom or are you just growing your own business? In your ministry, those of you who are in ministry, are you bearing fruit for the kingdom or are you building a name for yourself, a kingdom for yourself? I mean, we all struggle with this thing. We all struggle with pride issues, right? But we need to be making sure that we are seeking the kingdom. We are not seeking our own kingdom. And we want to make sure that we are not those who are cursed by God after he has shown us such great mercy, such great patience. So an application. Our Christian walk 
has both individual and corporate ramifications. What we do doesn't just affect us. Now, I think a lot of times I even get into this, this uh, trap of my sin only affects me. My laziness only affects me. Um, it doesn't. It affects all those around me in different ways. But also as a church, we affect one another and we affect the world around us, both individually and as the church, as the corporate body of Christ. We need to make sure we are bearing fruit together. You know, when you do something on your own, you can do a little bit. But when you do something together, you can bear much more fruit. We need to be bearing fruit together as the body of Christ. True faith results in practical actions, spiritual fruit, that line up with Scripture and impact the world around us. Does your life line up with Scripture? Does the way you live your daily, average life line up with Scripture? And does it make an impact in the world around you? If not, think about what would... What does God want me to do with my life? What should I be impacting? I think uh, when I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking of one thing I would like to see God really do. One fruit from that tree, just praying through just one fruit that I would really like God to do soon. And something that wasn't going to to benefit me, but something that would benefit someone else. And just think through, I'm not going to share what that is, but in your life right now, think of one thing right now that you would, uh, some relationship that you're struggling with, this broken relationship, some forgiveness issue, um, some issue of someone around you who needs your help, and it'll take a lot of time, and you'll have to sacrifice to help them, maybe sacrifice some resources to help them. What's that one thing that's nearby you, that next right thing that you can do? And we need to remember God has a limit to patience with us individually and corporately. The church in Ephesus honestly does not exist today. The church in most of those, most of those seven churches, I have friends working in those areas, and they say, basically, the church does not exist in that area anymore. They lost their lampstands. They stopped being the church, and they disappeared into history. When we are walking in faith and seeking his kingdom, there is real transformational power in our actions. Again, as we're looking for the fruit that God can do, Let's look at things that we could not do on our own. Those relationships that need to be transformed that can't just happen by our, our efforts. But we do need to put some efforts into those things, right? The way this works is when we produce fruit is that we walk forward in faith and God's spirit does something greater than we could have done. That's the way this works. So we do not just talk about things you can do in your own effort, but things that you want to see God do. In conclusion, are we leaves and no fruit? Do we just come to church on Sundays? Do we do our quiet times? but not put anything into practice? Are we simply religious and has, or has our relationship with Christ actually transformed our lives and our daily activities? Are we seeking God's will, asking in faith, according to his purposes? Or are we in danger of Jesus' judgment for refusing to hear, repent, and be transformed by his word and the spirit? Let's pray. Lord God, we know that you want us to bear fruit. We pray that we are not just leaves, that we are truly those who would bear fruit, Lord. We don't always even know what that means. Sometimes we struggle understanding what it is you would have us to do. But may we, as we spend time in your words, spend time in prayer, spend time with other members of the body of Christ, may we see your vision clearly for how you want to transform our family, friends, acquaintances, our community around us. May we make an impact that shows a true light, the true light of Christ to all those around us, Lord. We want to be what you've designed us to be. We want to hear that good and faithful service, that message of good and faithful servant when we stand before you, Lord. We do not want to be those who lose their lampstand, who are just whitewashed tombs, Lord. 
We don't want to be hypocritical in the way we live, but may we live in the Spirit. May we live in your Word. And may there be fruit that's abundant, more than we could have ever desired, Lord, or ever even thought of. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.